Welcome to episode 3 of Oh Brother, What Are We Watching? Two brothers discussing pop culture with a geeky bent. As ever, I'm joined by my co-host Chris. How's it going, Chris? It's going very well, Steve. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. And we're here today today to talk about The Life Aquatic with Steve Zuzu. Um, but before we get into that, Chris, um, the last time that we, we talked, we were talking about Donnie Darko uh-huh. and, and then right I now. set you the task for this, but what it kind of set off in my mind was actually about the Royal Tenenbaums. Uh-huh. And I think that was probably the first Wes Anderson film that we both watched. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, now I'm going to know your, your amazing memory is going to come in handy here. Did we watch? Yeah, it in, it's actually. Yeah. Did we watch it on DVD together, or did I go to the movies and then buy it on DVD? I can't remember. Um. Okay. So we saw it in the cinema separately. Uh, I right. went to go see it with my friends. You went to go see it with yours. Right. Um. And I remember that. I'll tell you why. Uh. It's because a very close friend of mine, um, had a panic attack, or a mild panic attack, uh, during the film. Really? Uh. Because he doesn't deal well with. Um, specific kinds of like people cutting their wrists or people slitting necks things like that uh, really freak him out um, and there's obviously a scene in the Royal Tenenbaums where one of the characters rather unexpectedly um, slits his wrists in just in the middle of doing something and it just freaked him right out so that's always sort of stuck in my memory um, but we did watch it together you bought it on DVD um, and we did watch it together after oh, the right. fact that's right, that's right. And of course, that was our first introduction to, to Wes Anderson, which has a very unique style. Uh, I became a big uh-huh. fan. I'm not fair sure. Uh, yeah, fair to say. I'm fair to say that I became quite a big fan of his. And uh, one of the reasons why I suggested Life Aquatic was two reasons. One, you hadn't seen it. But uh-huh. the second reason was because actually it's not his most liked film. And I thought it could no. be quite an interesting discussion for us. Uh, rather than just sitting here and blabbering back and forth that, oh, I like it. Oh, I like it too. Fantastic. Oh, it's really great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So The Life Aquatic was released in 2004. It was a bit of a box office failure. It registered only uh, $38.4 million from a $50 million budget. It was also the first film that Wes Anderson didn't actually co-write with Owen Wilson, uh, wow. who at this point was a huge Hollywood star uh, after wow. Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and the Royal Tenenbaums. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so Wes Anderson would uh, bring in a new co-writer, Noah Baumbach, who would help on the writing duties and something he would also do on Fantastic Mr. Fox, which would probably end up being one of my all-time favourite films. Uh, and finally, of the, the Wes Anderson acting troupe, we got a few people in this film that have been in many of his other films, Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Angelica Houston and Seymour Castle. So, Chris, what did you think of The Life Aquatic having watched it? That's a very complicated question, isn't it? Um, because I don't know. I don't honestly know how I felt about the film. Um, I literally finished watching it 20 minutes ago, half an hour ago, maybe. Right. Um, so it's still very fresh. And I think I liked it. I do think I liked it, but I, it's very... I mean, like you say... Uh, Wes Anderson, he is, he's an auteur, if you will. Um, his very distinctive style does things his way. He sort of delivers his message uh, in a way that, that no one else does. And, you know, so I was certainly enjoying the fact that I was watching something unique. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's uh, we discussed before, you know, how nice it is to, to 
watch something and have it feel a bit fresh. So I definitely enjoyed that um, aspect of it. There was certainly yeah. quite a few moments, in much in the same way as the Royal Tenenbaums, where I wouldn't have said I just watched a gut-bustingly funny movie, but mm-hmm. I certainly laughed um, out loud quite a few times. Uh, there were a few bits that just really, really made me chuckle. Um, most of which were delivered by Owen Wilson. Right, okay. Uh, who I adore. <laughs> but, you know, I also have to say it actually, in spite of its sort of crazy deadpan delivery, etc., st- I still find myself feeling quite moved by the end of it. Again, I don't know why. <laughs> But it, it did sort of, um, yes, it, it definitely got through. So I think I liked it. <laughs> I think I need to sleep on it. I don't know. Um, I, I certainly think I need to watch it again. Right. It's interesting because mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I suggested this was because I thought I was actually going to uh, rewatch it and come out of it and try and take a position where I'd be against the critics because the critics weren't really kind to this film. They didn't hate it. But of Wes Anderson's film, it's probably in the lower third, maybe lower half. Mm-hmm. And when I rewatched it, I was actually um, surprised because my thoughts really changed after watching it and not for the positive. Okay. Um, there was quite a few things to like in there, but I came away um, a little bit disappointed, a little bit conflicted like you. Yeah. Uh, but without going into too much detail about that, I want to kind of focus in on your thoughts in the film because you just watched it. Uh-huh. So what did you think? What did you think of this world, this odd world that Anderson created with um, the pale and blue and red uh, Zuzu cult. <laughs> I mean, I liked... I, I, I certainly like the visual of it. Um, it's, you know, it's obviously Anderson creates... Like you say, he creates these worlds. They're quite... They're quite quirky. They're quite unique. And, and one of the reasons I feel I need to rewatch it is because I think... I probably missed a lot about it. I'm sure there was a lot going on in the background, um, you know, that I didn't see. Uh, it's very, it's very striking. Um, yeah. I think uh, visually. Um, what kind of strikes me when I watch films like this, and I think I pr- it's probably fair to say I, I think I felt this when I watched the Royal Tenenbaums too, is that regardless of whether or not I enjoy it at the time, I tend to come away from it thinking like. There was something I didn't get, and right. like there was something for me to get, and I just didn't quite get it. And that's not a criticism of the the filmmaker. It's it's more a sort of, you know, what's wrong with me? What am I missing here? What you know? What what, what wasn't? What good? is wrong with you? Yeah, because there's 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 a lot of stuff where it's like I see you've done something strange there. I don't know why though. <laughs> I don't know, like you know. So there'll be these scenes. Um, you know, he does a lot of those, like, sort of quick cuts, um, but not like a smash cut, like, bam, you know, just like... Like a whip pan. Yeah, just like, uh, you know, we we were standing walking, and now we're at our destination standing still. Do you know what I mean? Those kind of shots. Yeah. Um, He'll have scenes where things are delivered in this very deadpan, monotone way. And again, I presume there's a reason for it. I presume it's there's a point to it. I just don't necessarily know what that point is. <laughs> You know, sometimes I think it's meant to be humorous. If it is, that doesn't always register for me. Well, I think when I first watched this film, um, I was immediately taken into the world and I was very um, 
I remember being in the, the cinema watching this and laughing laughing out loud at this crazy world with yeah. this uh, this cultish crew of deep sea explorers um, with their, their their red bobble hats and their their blue and their very out of date clothing and, and accessories and everything and yeah you know rewatching it again it almost seems like it's super stylized it's over stylized mm. it's it's certainly ambitious um i think i very briefly had time to look up some reactions criticisms from the time and a few oh looking back do i feel different kind of yeah um pieces and yeah as you say the critics at the time seemed to pretty much despise it and uh, you know certainly a lot of the cri- a lot of the things that kept coming up where the film is too long <laughs> and i certainly have to agree with that it's it is quite a long movie and it does feel long which you don't want um but yeah as, as you say in terms of the world you know it's very quirky it's fun i i sat there smiling quite a lot just at the the ridiculousness of it um i liked that that sort of yeah the low rent feeling of Zizu's crew and the boat and the, the sort of the sense of denial I think he has about that yeah um, I love Jeff Goldblum's character and how obviously everything he has is like massive high tech and he's a bad husband because he's a little gay he's a, I'm a little gay <laughs> yeah so I think I I I, I did get I, I did quite enjoy the world I wonder if I wonder if it loses something being watched at home on a dvd versus the big screen you know um i think mm-hmm. i think it's more easy to get drawn into that world right okay. in, in in that kind of environment uh so i think that might might have something to do with it um uh, but yeah you know I, I i did smile a lot and and chuckle sometimes you know there's those little stop animation yeah <laughs> Things yeah, they have the they're and... very unique look, don't they? They have the CG, I think it's CGI yeah. animals, or, or maybe stop animation, but it has that stop animation yeah. look and feel, and that's that's quite fun. And the way everyone's just reacting to it normally. Yeah. So, talking um, a bit more about this world, I want to talk now about uh, Steve Zazu himself. Uh-huh. And something that really came across when I was watching it this time, which I never, I guess, I had picked it up before in the past, Chris, but. I never really focused on it was he's he's really quite an unlikable bitter man mm. when I've, yeah. i i'm quite partial to oddball films i'm quite partial to oddball characters and certainly bill murray's been around enough we, we've yeah. seen him play cynical unlikable people before but this is not like groundhog day or yeah or scrooged or ghostbusters like i actually think that this character is he's quite unlikable no he's quite bitter um he's got a real uh inferiority complex about him and i think that's one of the reasons why when i rewatched it today i wasn't quite as into it as i was before in the past because i was trying to focus on this character and at the end of it i was like i don't want you to be happy yeah. I, I really don't <laughs> like you i'm not sure you deserve to be happy um it's like like you say murray's played cynical people before um but they've always been charming that's that's the difference, you know. His his character in Groundhog Day or Ghostbusters or Scrooge, mm, yeah. you know. Yes, he's he's usually a cynical asshole who's kind of out for number one. But yeah, he usually has like this this sort of streak of charm and a little bit of, you know, yeah. He's actually he's actually deep down he's a good guy. Um, Zizu's a bit more. 
kind of self-pitying um and he doesn't have any charm to speak of you know whatsoever it might just be quirk taken too far <laughs> i don't know if that's well i think that's the way the character has been written though he 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 frequently says lines about um about being very bitter and how his life hasn't turned out the way it has and how his first wife uh jacqueline so that the submersible is named yeah. jacqueline and so why did he change the names like, oh she never really loved <laughs> me and uh, there's there's lines about why ned's on board is like well he looks yeah. up to me um he he really has an inferiority complex which i think makes it um hard for you to root for him in yeah. my opinion but you're right i mean bill murray does the best that he can with it and i think he's still very he's still very funny but it's very deadpan at times very dry yeah i think i think almost everything i could say about this film is it's just something that's taken maybe just too to too much of an extreme um and that's that's a fine example it's dead deadpan but just to the nth degree to the point where you're kind of going you know he's beyond being relatable for the most part um and you know when those scenes you know for example scenes between him and Owen Wilson are delivered with him being like, so, what do you think? Yeah, happy here? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's hard to get emotionally invested in him as a character. Um, right, and it's also the way he forces himself on others. Um, and the, the, you just brought up a great yeah. example with Ned. So, he says, I would have named you Kingsley. Uh, and he's like, well, I'm not interested in that. He's like, I quite like Ned. And he's like, he gives him his stationery. And it says, Kingsley brackets Ned. <laughs> brackets Zuzu. <laughs> it's just, he's just like, no, I'm going to call you Kingsley now. And then even on the roster towards the end, he's like, who's all supposed to be on watch? It's like, Kingsley. Oh, yeah, it's Ned. <laughs> and it's not until the end where he actually calls him Ned. He's a, he's a complex character. There were times where I felt sort of sorry for him. Um, and... I suppose I like it at the end where he kind of says he's he's talking to the reporter about what he read and he's like, yeah, I come across like a bit of a selfish prick. I guess I kind of am a bit though, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does that at the end. It did, it did take his well, it's not his son, but it did, yeah. it did take yeah. Ned dying for him to get there. And yeah, that's again, it's, you know, it's so kind of quirky and there's kind of so much going on. I didn't exactly pick up on. The, the 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 point so like angelica houston says that he shoots blanks and therefore ned can't yeah. be his son um so is the point basically like some kid that might kind of look up to him he's willing to basically take on as his progeny because he just because he's that desperate for the validation even though he knows that it can't he be his son or does he not know that he can't be his son well it's an excellent point he's he's desperate for that validation from people to be seen as the great explorer, to be seen as a great person, but he he outright says, "And I hated fathers. Hated, you know, didn't like his father. Doesn't didn't never wanted to be a father." Yeah. So it's a real odd balance. That that's, that's why I kind of walked away with a bit of a an odd feeling from it after rewatching it. Like it's it, there's elements there that are really good, but I'm not quite sure about the message. Yeah, I mean, Wes Anderson films, with the exception of Fantastic Mr. Fox. I think often leave me feeling kind of like, huh, what if I just watched? Um, you know, I felt both times I watched the Royal Tenenbaums, I kind of came away from it thinking it's just, it's, it's very quirky. It had 
funny moments. For the most part, it was light-hearted, but that was really juxtaposed with some pretty serious stuff about, you know, families and suicide uh, and whatnot. And, you know, again, here, you're dealing with themes like, you know, suicide, uh, abandoning children. Hmm. Um, you know, there's there's quite a few times when the, uh, you know, the reporter uh, is is pregnant and she's mm-hmm. not necessarily doing things that are particularly good for her kid. Um, and that's kind of, you know, obviously uh, a part of it. But yeah, like I say, I'm I'm constantly left with this feeling like, I don't get it. I don't get what you're trying to tell me. <laughs> I, I get that that's the theme, but what 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 is the point of this? Well, I, th- you know? I think in other films, his his theme comes across better. That uh, it's maybe about family and, and learning about oneself. Um, a bit. I think it's delivered a bit more clearly. Mm. Whereas here, it's a bit of a muddle. I tell I tell you what. I tell you what. I think. Um, I'm going to make a comparison here that I think basically no one will follow. Um, so it's probably not a oh, very go good for comparison. It. No one's but... gonna follow it. Go for it. No one's listening. <laughs> no one's fucking listening. No one cares. Um, so I can I can have free reign. So <laughs> I would like to compare him to uh, a a director of video games, um, who you who you might be familiar with called uh, Hideo Kojima, right? Um, known best for the Metal Gear and the Metal Gear Solid series. Right. This is this is gonna be spectacular. I'm glad I've got a beer for this. On you go. Okay, so he he is considered in the sort of gaming world uh, to be, you know, kind of an auteur. You know, he's an artist. He's quite different. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't doesn't do things the way other people do things. Um, and I love I love those games. They're they're great. But I played um, I played Metal Gear Solid Four uh, long long after it was um, released, only really a few uh, months ago, and. I timed the amount of time that I was playing a physical game, and that came to about an hour. And the whole experience was maybe 14 hours. So I have to reasonably assume that there's about 12 hours of a movie in there, uh, interspersed with tiny little pockets of gameplay. And the exposition is dire, and it's constant, and there's so much of it, and it's so confusing, and there's themes, and there's soliloquies, and... It's you know it's fun and it's artsy and it's it's different, which I love. But uh, you know I had to sort of say after having played that game, like fuck, he has just gone too far on this wow. one. Like he needs someone to rein him in. And I felt that the problem with that was that he had become so much of a star due to the series that he had got more and more creative control, to the point when he was finally allowed to do what he wanted to do, and he just went crazy. Right. Um. And I felt the you know. <laughs> The smaller fry he was, and the more he needed to bend to the will of, say, Konami, the distributing company, right. who shit-canned him after the last game. You know, the more he he had to be a bit deferential and maybe rein it in. That was perfect, you know? He was able to make fantastic games with great storylines that were a little bit off the wall, that had really strong messages. Mm. But when just left to his own devices, he went crazy. Now, Wes Anderson here... um you know, it seems it seems like has really just been like, I don't want to edit my movie down. I think it's good at two hours. I think it says everything I wanted to say. Uh, you know, and I'm sure there were certain scenes that a good editor 
would have taken out that would have streamlined it that would have made it flow a bit better um that maybe they could have painted Zizu in a slightly more likable light um but I, don't, but I, don't... I think he had a sufficient amount of creative control here that it was too much Wes Anderson you know even though he wrote it with someone else there are a wide array of scenes in the film which re-emphasize certain points which could have been cut and then there's certain scenes which are just quite slow um and that detract from the pace so you said they're two hours two hours is actually a fine nowadays is a fine length for a film compared to the two and a half three hour mega blockbusters we get however the um the pace of the film is is a bit slow and there are scenes like at the start you get this gorgeous scene chris and i'm sure you stood out to you with the cross section of the ship where Mm. he explains the bellafonte and he goes through room to room it's visually striking. It's amazing. Yeah. Actually, you think, oh, this, this was a physical set they made, and they, they film right. on it two or three times to show you them going from room to room. But it was stuck in the middle of yeah. uh, the end of the party scene and the start of when they go to some explorers club for yeah. it looks like early morning wine. Um, again, both those scenes only, I mean, the, the cross section scene didn't really serve anything other than. Yeah telling you the quickly the story about the, the ship and the crew and then the explorers one i was kind of lost afterwards I was like why are they here why, why have they how did they get here from the party and where are they going next and then they end up on the island rather than the boat yeah. so again this is you're you know i think there are you're right i think there's a couple of scenes um like those two for example which either could have been trimmed or changed or outright cut uh that would have helped the flow of the film yeah, and I I feel like I feel like if if Wes Anderson were to hear us say this, he'd be like, oh no, you don't get it, you don't understand why that that has to be there. You have to have that scene at that point, because sometimes, you know, filmmakers do just disappear up their own ass. And I might be being too harsh on the guy. It might be that there was a lot of different problems with the film that had nothing to do with him. You know, um, I'd be very interested to hear his commentary. Actually, I, I must look and see if I've got it on the DVD. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the uh, the good performances we should talk about actually is, uh, well, she's actually in the, only in the film a small amount is Angelica yeah. Houston, because she is basically the conscience of Zizou. She's in there. She's um, trying to stop him from going to murder the shark, and she's trying to stop him from uh, exploiting Ned, oh. actually. I thought she was terrific. I thought um, she was a really good part of the film. But she was, I think her part needed to be beefed up because you don't have that counterbalance to Zuzu's um, cynicism. Like, I get the point, obviously, when she comes back and all of a sudden she's pulled everything together and it turns out very quickly, oh, she's a complete genius. She's been able to figure out from the sound and the the, the background of the the phone message exactly where he is. I thought that was Um, hilarious. It's very funny. It is very funny. And and she does that, and she comes back, and she's pointing to the map, and Zizu's like, "Yes, it's it's over here," and she's sort of silently being like, "No, no, here it is," <laughs> and it's that is very funny, and and it's obviously a moment that sort of says, you know, this is why everything's gone off the rails. It's because all along she was the brains, and and he's almost just like a figurehead, um you know so that so that kind of happened but i was like i don't know it almost didn't create like enough of a stark contrast for me you know to sort of to be like oh that's why everything's right. gone wrong do, do you know what i mean it was 
just, you know, everything kind of gets sort of back on track, not really. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of also led to wonder, well, is is he... Is he kind of the more inspired of the two? Is he kind of the more creative of the two? Because obviously everything they've done for the last X amount of years has been mm. garbage. Um, and if she's the brains behind that, is that a problem? What did you think, just changing okay. tack for a second, what did you think of Please. Yeah. Uh, Jane the Reporter's English accent? Uh, changeable. <laughs> But again, I don't even know. Things are so quirky. I'm not even sure if I was supposed to, if that's part of a joke or not, you know? Um, she was an interesting character because, I, again, I couldn't quite follow what I was meant to think about her or what kind of her role was. Obviously, she's pregnant, like I say. She's kind of not... She's drinking. That's not great. I don't think she smokes, but she's around people who are smoking. That's kind of weird. Well, the way the way I saw it, Chris, was that um, she she was basically representing the um, the mother figure to to both uh, Steve Z. We'll call him Steve Z. Steve Z and uh, and Ned. You know, Ned had just lost his mm-hmm. mother, had never had a father, uh, only lost his mother a yeah. month before he he meets up. Actually, so here's someone who's playing the part of mother she of course is pregnant with a child herself yeah. and she's uh representing that kind of what do you call it like a gaia figure like she's trying to to to, uh-huh. to be both a lover and a mother to to ned um one thing i do want to talk to you chris is actually about about ned actually you, uh-huh. you said actually um that you're a big fan of owen wilson so what did you think of owen wilson in this film in many ways he was sort of my favorite part of the film um, as I say, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of his his comic style, his delivery. Um, he was definitely my favorite part in the Royal Tenenbaums as well. Uh, even though he has a very small role in that, if I remember, his 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 very deadpan delivery. There's one part in particular where I think they're they're out on the deck, and Sisu says, uh, "Oh, you can hear the whales singing. It, it's it's beautiful." And then you hear like this foghorn. And he just has this wistful look. He's like, mm, "Yeah, it's beautiful. I wonder what they're saying." Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> it's very. <laughs> I mean, that that absolutely tickled me. That that really had me going for quite a while. Um, so his his moments his moments were kind of a shining light for me. He's in a, you know he's he's quite an interesting character. Somebody's he's looked up to this guy all his life. He's finally met him. He's maybe not quite what he expected, and. You know, he's sort of surprised to be kind of taken under his wing. I think he's quite. I think his reaction to to Zizi is quite complex, actually, because on the one hand, you do get a lot of that childlike admiration coming out. You know, he wants to remake the banner for him, and yeah. he's still got the letter that that he got from him. You know, when he was eleven, yeah. and you know, there's that and wanting to call him dad. You know, and and being quite hurt when he's like. Mm. That nickname doesn't work. Try <laughs> Steve. <Yeah. laughs> that, that for me was actually one of the best scenes where they're sitting there underwater and they're trying to script this. He's and they're like, just having this. I'll call you dad. He's like, no, that won't play as well. And, and <laughs> Klaus is like, yeah. how about Steve Z? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that works. Steve Z. You know, yeah, that's the. I mean, those are the kind of bits I like in those kind of movies. You know, it's 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 quirky, but I get why it's happening, and I I I can just get on board with that kind of humor better. But you know, at, at the same time, you know, he 
he kind of gets he gets quite pissed off, you know, when when uh you know Steve walks in on on him and the reporter and and sort of turns on him. Um, you know, he gets quite angry, quite angry at him there, and it does feel just sometimes from his reactions that he's a bit kind of to me anyway. It just seems like he's a bit kind of disappointed with the reality yeah. of this this person that he's idolized for yeah, so long. Yeah, and he's never had a father figure, he's never had a dad and and this could be it and he's, yeah, absolutely, he's very disappointed and it all culminates eventually towards the end of the film where they have their big bust up and they have their fight which is two punches long but is is, is quite funny with the, yeah. that's not how you fight this is how you fight uh, I did yeah. love the fact that he works for Air Kentucky and he's dressed up like Colonel Sanders from KFC <laughs> Yeah, there's a. I mean, there's a lot to like here. There is. There's. There's a, a lot of. Um, I. I feel like this film is. It is very mm. flawed, uh, as as a film as a whole. But I'm glad that I've watched it, and I, I do want to see it again. I like the um, the idea as well. Like when, um, Zizu decides like he's had enough with the pirates on the boat. And he like chews through the rope, and he takes a yes. gun, and he just shoots some of them. <laughs> the rest of them like single handedly. Yeah, call back them off. to the jaguar shark scene from the start, where he gets the pink eye, and he goes mental, and yeah. he just yeah, he just bites his way through the ropes. It is um, it's quite a fun scene actually when he does that. It takes on the the Filipino pirates, um, and uh, tries to rescue yeah. the Bond Stooge, um, who was actually one of my favorite parts of the film. The Bond Stooge, I thought he was terrific. Yeah, he was he was good. I liked his uh, I liked his little journey actually. But but what did you make of the death of Ned? So spoiler alert: Ned dies um, yeah, towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it was one of the reasons why um, this. There's a lot to like in this film, but it is quirky. But one of the reasons why I kind of came away from today's re- rewatching of this film a bit disappointed was that ultimately it felt like an empty death. It was a meaningless, not a meaningless death in terms of the film because it's the kind of the final spur to get Zizou back on track. Mm-hmm. But I felt that it was a bad end to Ned's personal arc that he came along, he wasn't his son, but the you know everything was rosy, and then <laughs> Joss Whedon esque, just take yeah. him out, just in a meaningless accident, you know, in the middle of the ocean. I just, I don't know, it felt me a bit cold. What did you feel about it? Yeah, I felt very, I felt very blindsided actually because I didn't. I thought that what was going to happen is, like they were there, and it kept dipping the camera below the water, and the water would just be red, and I assumed that the point was, oh, there's blood in the water, sharks attracted to blood in the water, the sharks going to turn up after all, and and they'll see it, and it'll be a moment, and and they'd move on um but i didn't think he was dead and i was kind of until it got to the the actual funeral bit i was like what he he died he seriously died oh weird um and you know again like just just as they're about to crash so they're they're crashing and zizu says something like oh this is gonna hurt and then it's obviously shot as if it was a really you know like as if it was a really low rent movie this is how it would look so you know the the camera's kind of awkwardly turning upside down and cutting back and forth and then occasionally flashing red 
and then it cuts to them both in the water all the time. No, I, th- I think Chris, it just fits in with his visual style, which of this film, you know, a lot of the special effects when they go down in the submersible, for example, it looks like model work, it looks like stop animation. That's a little bit lo-fi at times, a little bit low-rent, and not necessarily yeah. any big budget is associated with it. I think mm. I think that's that's the point of that, the way he filmed that scene. But I think what stuck out more to me um, was was just the kind of the empty death of it all. You know, the, everything's finally kind of in place, and it's just yanked away. Yeah, that's it. You know, they've they've had a nice moment. You know, Zizu kept his letter all along too, and actually that I think that's where the movie started to get me, sort of. You know, like as I say, by the end of it, I did feel kind of moved, you know, in a way. And I think that was the first part of it. You know, reading his letter, you know, again, seeing his side of it, that just I've named these after you. You know, you know, I, I idolize you, I worship you, basically. Um, and that Caesar had kept that, and that it meant something to him. You know, and then with his death, that that whole thing, I found quite like you know quite moving and yeah i think you're right it is kind of an empty death because there's not like a big moment at the end of it you know he just kind of blames himself for the crash and then dies um and you know as i say i i kind of come away from moments like that just feeling like oh well, you've made me kind of sad now and you know character's dead yeah, yeah. <laughs> All this talk about death. His mum was dying of cancer badly enough to kill herself. <laughs> I know it's but it's a very. I've got to go lie down. A, it's, I don't think it is a downbeat film, but it is a. F- no, it's definitely not downbeat. It is a film that has a lot of cynicism to it. Ha- has a lot of um, what's the best way of describing it? it? Has a lot of these moments where um, the characters deliver bad news and 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 bad events that happen to them i don't think anyone actually has a happy experience in this film whatsoever um which can be a bit yeah yeah, i think so i think it's fair to say um but i mean one of the reasons why i picked this chris was because uh, i'm a bit of a west vanderson um and Mm -hmm. the these films have a a special place in my heart because uh, the unique visual style, which you've really picked up off of Wes Anderson, the kind of the cadre of actors he yeah. uses are usually top notch. Um, as we talked about Bill Murray and Angelica Houston and, and Owen Wilson as well. Um, probably my favourite part of the film was probably actually Willem Dafoe as Klaus. I actually thought uh, he was hilarious uh, in every scene he had, and he was another one who was kind of another character uh, seeking affirmation from a, a father figure. Yeah, uh, and desperately wanting it, but his was a lot more comedic. I think that's why I warmed yeah. to it a lot more. Was every time he was on screen, he made me laugh. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, obviously he's he's almost the opposite. Where everyone else, uh, are, so many of the other characters are delivering some, you know, things very like deadpan. You know, just saying the lines, no emotion, no whatever else. Everything he does is just like drenched in emotion, drenched in drama. You know, right down to like slapping Ned in the face and saying like, you know, um, every second that Jeff Goldblum was on the screen, I was happy. Um, <laughs> You're a big I, Jeff Goldblum fan, Chris, aren't I'm you? I'm a massive Jeff Goldblum fan. Um, I can see, I can, I, I don't think he can do any wrong. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just, he's just. 
yeah, was, his his delivery was brilliant. Um, I just loved his I loved his character and, and the juxtaposition of 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 his character with with Zizu's and. I kind of get the feeling that while Zizu looks at him like he's a bitter rival, he doesn't reciprocate the feeling. Like I don't no. think he particularly even you know rates him, and that's kind of funny in its own way, and part of what sort of makes Zizu quite sort of a, a pathetic. Well, well Chris, he's got um, Zizu has the small man mentality, and he mm. sees uh, Hennessy as his his big rival, doesn't he? And rival, uh, he yeah. doesn't see him as his rival at all. In fact, at the start of the film, um, he's at his premiere, and Zizou turns around and says, "Don't talk to him. He's my nemesis." Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is terrific. And you're right, Jeff Goldblum just pops off the screen anytime he's on. Anyway, he does that. He's perfect at the role he's he's asked to play here. Yeah, and it, it's it's even even comes across as just you you can see where it all comes from because he's so much more assertive. And there's like the scene where the the three legged dog is like skipping around. And it, he seems like he's just harmlessly saying, oh, what, what's the dog's name? Uh, and he tells him, and then he just gets up and bats it round the head and says, stay! <laughs> sits back down. Um, and, like, the dog, you know, the dog obeys him. <laughs> kind of... Yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's loads, of little, loads of little minutes like that. There's that loads of little good. lovely scenes like that. Like, uh, you see Hennessy on his ship as he's coming to... Uh... To, to search for him and he's got a cadre of um young attractive men behind him as his yeah. <laughs> as his in- interns um yeah. <laughs> which is uh it's just a really funny way the complete difference to the the ramshackle crew that zizu has one of the most likable things for me was it's just a very tiny visual moment when they're cutting together some footage of when they found hennessy's ship and one of the shots in in it is um Cece basically standing atop the prow of the ship looking kind of victorious and and sort of you know it, almost almost like he was responsible for sinking it and you see that's the kind of likable character flaw that I could have done with more of you know just like yeah he's he's a bit petty and he's a bit vindictive mm. but that's funny that I can get on board with, you know. You view him as your rival, uh, and this is a sort of a way to get one up on him in a really petty way. That that was something that was quite fun. Uh, you said you wanted to talk about the music. Yeah. So basically, as as a bit of a musical, Chris, someone who appreciates music, I mm-hmm. wanted to take just a few minutes to talk about the soundtrack because um, yeah. of a couple of nice links. So, did you know? Um, who did the original soundtrack for this film and why I would want to bring him up? Um, I literally saw the name and I forgot. Um... <laughs> That's a no. <laughs> so the soundtrack was by uh, Mark Mothersbaugh, uh, who is Exit of Devo. However, he also scored the Rugrats TV show. Did he really? Right. No, I did not know that. I did not know that. Ah. It's a good soundtrack. Um, I loved the, uh, I think he's Brazilian guitar player who kept playing all the David Bowie songs um, with the Portuguese lyrics. Yeah, I don't know how you pronounce his name. I think it's Sue George or Sue Jorge. Um, and obviously there's, there's two, I think by my count, two Bowie songs. Obviously there's all, he sings, I think maybe five or six. Um, and I, I absolutely loved that because every time he started playing, from the first one onwards, I knew that it was going to be a Bowie song every time. 
And so I would start listening to it and being like, which one is it? Which one is it? <laughs> and some you can tell instantly, <laughs> um, like Life on Mars, you can tell instantly, and um, Ziggy Stardust, I, you know, I could tell straight away. Um, but then, like, it took me a minute to realize he was playing Space Oddity, and as soon as I did, like, I loved that. Um, so that was quite a fun aside. Rest, rest in peace, Bowie Bowie. Um, yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the soundtrack, Chris, was because I think it does a really good, um, really good job of of setting the scene. So, of course, the, the film is sort of a spoof on the old fashioned uh, oceanographer tales. Jack Cousteau is the yeah. one that's mentioned in the credits as a big thank you. Yeah, uh, I can't say if I've ever uh, watched a Jack Cousteau um, film myself, but certainly seeing the kind of the the film within the film. Uh, I remember yeah. sitting in primary school in Scotland and uh, being force-fed old VHSs when the teacher couldn't be bothered to teach us. And <laughs> it'd be very much that kind of plinky-plonky music along with uh, old-fashioned uh, visuals um, to show you a bit on the scene, whatever. And uh, But I think uh, the, the soundtrack itself was, was excellent. Uh, the score was very good. And, and another reason why it sticks out to me just as a weird story is that... Um, me and my first boss in the workplace uh-huh. uh, bonded over this film, bonded oh, really? over the soundtrack, and I actually bought it for him as a Christmas present. That's good of you. It is good of me. I'm a very nice person. Um, but, I've always thought so. Well, I just also wanted to raise, you know, I'm very cynical like that. But he, he really liked the track from when they attack Ping Island. Uh, which is called Lightning Strike on the soundtrack. And it's um, the same kind of uh, lo-fi MIDI song played. Yeah. Uh, it's played about three or four times in the song. And then it, it ramps up to a full orchestral track as they are uh, running onto the island with their glocks, uh, trying to yeah. rescue the Bond Stooge. And of course, <laughs> no one's there. It's kind of a complete letdown. But the song is uh, is terrific. And my boss really liked it. So I bought him the soundtrack. And it's just one of these little things that stood out with me with with watching this film. Um, I just always uh, love uh, the soundtrack and all the Bowie songs on it and everything. Uh, if that's yeah. one thing about Wes Anderson films, I think you can always say um, he always does a good soundtrack. Oh, he, he blows you away. And I mean, it's the soundtrack was very good, was very fitting. You know, obviously a lot of the lo-fi, uh, as you put it, songs tend to accompany, you know, quite lo-fi moments. Um, and, uh, and and they do just help complete it. Um, I liked like the I think it was called like Zizu's theme or something when they're actually all in the submersible uh, and all going down to look for the the jaguar shark and that that was sort of playing. Um, yeah, the soundtrack was fantastic. I quite liked when um, they go up in the air balloon. Uh, Zizu and the reporter. It's Joan Baez. Here's to you, Nicola and Bart. Or it's just here's to you, actually. I thought it was here's to you, Napoleon Bonaparte. No, no. Um, I tell you, I've I've looked this song up before. It's it's referring. Have you ever heard of Sacco and Vanzetti? Yeah. No. <laughs> D- What's don't that? lie. Just, <laughs> just don't, don't, don't lie try to bluff, me, Stephen. Just be I've never. Heard you're gonna ah. Oh, th- th- I shouldn't be letting you edit this because I know you're gonna edit this together to make it sound like I didn't know what I was talking about, but. Um, they were uh, they were two anarchists who were jailed in the states uh, around the time of where well, you know where they were da- the way they were jailing like communists and uh, you know that stuff 
when all that was going on um, <laughs> when all that mess was going on the world is a much better place now chris nothing bad is going on now. nothing bad has happened um all hail overlord trump um you know you know what i'm talking about so yeah there was these two guys they were anarchists and they were um if memory serves basically just jailed for very little to nothing um but it was mainly they were being jailed for their beliefs because it was believed that anarchy was not a good thing to be spreading in the United States, so they sort of became, I think, a bit of a, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a movement. You know, there was a lot of people that were quite outraged by what happened. I might be getting this entirely wrong. I, I studied it very briefly at GCSE. Um, but yeah, so they were called Sacco and Vanzetti, but their first names were Nicola um, and Bart. Um, I forget which one was which, and that song is about them, um, not Napoleon Bonaparte, famously. Okay, so it was also in this video game. Uh, yeah, it was in um, Metal Gear Solid. In fact, if you uh, Google, um, or I'm sure Bing, uh, here's <laughs> yeah, it's like the fourth entry down is from the Metal Gear Wiki um, page. So they were two Italian immigrants, and it, um, it was originally composed by the Italian composer Ennio Morricone. So there you go. You have learned something officially by listening to this podcast, if you didn't know that already. I learned something there about that, so that's excellent. I did not yeah. know that. It is an excellent song. It is. It's very catchy, and um, it it was quite different. A lot of the songs, you know, the, a lot of the songs in the soundtrack are kind of incongruent to each other, but work with the film, um, you know, in the moments they're put they're put into and that's a very Wes Anderson thing I think um, if there's one thing you can take away from his films whether you like them or not is they have excellent soundtracks and I've got tracks or whole albums from from this from Fantastic Mr. Fox from the Darjeeling Limited um, uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel most recently as well um, I, he has a real keen ear for, for good songs to put in a soundtrack but unlike someone like say I don't know Zack Snyder <laughs> He doesn't hit you over the head with ridiculous music choices. I, I I have a soft spot for this film because of when I watched it and because of um because it was one of the first Wes Anderson films I saw in the cinema, because it had Bill Murray in it. And this is Bill Murray, of course, at the time when he was um he had just done Lost in Translation, he was up for an Oscar. Um, he kind of reinvented his career at this point and uh, there was a lot of excitement about going to see him in the cinema as well. Um, but ultimately, after rewatching it, it's it's kind of a muddle. It's kind of a yeah, a bit of a mixed up film. There's a lot of good things in it. There's some good performances. It's got a great soundtrack. But ultimately, I think the film um, just needs a bit more work. But I I do think it's kind of an interesting curio. Yeah, it's it's it is fun. I um I'd like to share with you some comments that my wife made actually, if I may. Oh, excellent! So um, we've now got a guest <laughs> appearance from wife of chris go on wife yeah. of chris um so she was she wasn't with me for the whole movie um but she sort of sat in in for the start and we watched the first sort of half hour together and she sort of casually said to me it's like oh are you are you watching this for you, your podcast you're doing with steve i said yeah 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 and she sort of nodded kind of sagaciously and said yeah you can tell this was his pick um, and then not long thereafter left the room. <laughs> 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 uh, 
right, um, she's off the fucking then, card, Christmas card list. <laughs> I don't think it was meant to be a dig at you personally, but I think she just thought like it's a bit more artsy, you know. Um, you know, I think I tend to. I mean, I don't watch a lot of movies um, anymore. I have a lot of movies, I just don't watch them. And you know, when I do tend to watch something, it's usually quite a straightforward comedy film or an action movie. Um, so I don't usually go in for things that are, yeah, a bit more, ooh, ooh, what does it all mean? Um, which this probably falls more into the category of. Um, but yeah, she, she, she came back in, um, a little while later and, um, sort of caught the end of it and she was like, oh, so it's like, it was like Moby Dick then. And I was like, um, no, I, I think it was like, I can see why you would think that, especially if you'd only seen the start and end of it, because he starts swearing vengeance on the tiger shark and he ends like seeing it and then leaving it alone and sort of. Yeah, yeah, it kind of used the same kind of narrative structure. You think that it's it's going to be a kind of a Moby Dick, but it's yeah. really not about it's not about revenge. It's about family, and it's about um, yeah, it's about fatherhood, and it's about um, missing parents. So next episode, Chris. Usually, um, the last few episodes we've been back and forth on a uh, why don't you try this. But we're going to do something different next time because next episode is going to be close to your birthday. Uh-huh. And we're going to watch one of your, in fact, it might be your favorite film. It's certainly up there. I'd put it in a top 10, if that puts it in context. Is it top five? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Chris, Probably. tell us what is one of your favorite films and why were we watching it? So it's the. Um is the Jim Carrey classic, The Truman Show. Um, and the reason we're watching this is is because um, I made a throwaway comment about it um, a little while ago, and you gave me this very nonplussed response, like, what, The Truman Show? Um, and I pretty much like demanded satisfaction right there and then, <laughs> because I couldn't believe that you don't feel the same way I do about this film, which is that it was amazing at the time like it kind of blew my mind at the time and now i look back on it as being quite remarkably prophetic um of of the way entertainment was going and to boot is just a very nice very well-rounded uh film um but i won't talk about it too much now because we're going to talk about it in the next episode yeah i was going to say tell the audience about your facebook message which was it's (laughs) mind-blowing steve uh we have to do it now um and i just went yeah. was it mind-blowing i don't know but it, it is but we'll get to that we'll get to, we'll that. Get to that all right then yeah well that's all for this episode we'll be back in two weeks for our take on the truman show in the meantime if you wish you can keep in touch with us you can follow us on twitter at Pod. you can like us on facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. and finally we ask that you subscribe and review us on itunes uh, keep your negative t- reviews to yourself, right? We're just two amateurs. Yeah. Like we do, we don't need that hassle in our lives. We're just doing this for fun. So something positive, please. So, Fair one. Fair so one. I've been Steve. He's been Chris, and we'll see you next time. See you next Thanks time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>